0: Protestants participating in public life. A lot of white Protestants are afraid of what the future of the country is going to foretell. And they're especially f- afraid of the losing sort of market share of white Protestants in the United States. The social gospel movement actually helped save white Protestantism in the United States. My argument here is that the social gospel movement of the early 20th century is very conservative as compared to the movement, the grassroots movement of working people. Within many, many communities and many labor, many you know labor unions as well as the socialist party.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Upwards Podcast. I'm Dan, one of your hosts, and I work here at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Excited to share this conversation with you with Janine giordano Drake and her new book called "The Gospel of Church: How Mainline Protestants Vilified Christian Socialism." fractured the labor movement. It just came out this year with Oxford University Press. Janine is the clinical assistant professor of history at Indiana University and the history liaison to the Advanced College Project. She's been an active scholar for uh, quite a number of years now. Among her many publications and other contributions is she's the co-editor of the Pew and the Picket Line, Christianity and the American Working Class, which came out a few years ago. you enjoy this conversation we get into a very interesting historical topic which is the role of labor and the social gospel in american christianity and broader american society in the period of 1870 to 1920 this is the period that historians uh, call the gilded age and the second industrial revolution a lot of social change happening a lot of tension between labor and capital and we get into some of that detail and some of the interesting ways that Christianity and ideas of the common good and the responsibilities of, of Christian ethics toward the poor are debated and understood by different segments of the Protestant church at, in this period and the labor movement. So thanks for joining us and uh, look forward to this conversation with Janine Giordano-Drake. Welcome back to the Upwards podcast. I'm here with Janine giordano break to talk about her new book, um, The Gospel of Church. Welcome, Janine, to The Upwards Podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, it's always fun on the podcast to have a fellow historian and an American religious historian at that, or someone at least who um, dips into that field. I am as selfish as I can be and try to get as many as I can on the podcast. But um, this is a really uh, interesting conversation to have around an intersection of Theology, uh, church history, ecclesiology—even we'll get into what that is and and how that plays a really interesting role in this story, and also politics. Um, but Janine, just to start, give us a sense of what you do in your in your day job, and you know what type of history you really enjoy uh, writing about.
0: So um, I'm a professor at Indiana University. Um, and actually a lot of my, my day job is a little bit detached from this research on on labor and American religion. Um, I I specialize in the relationship between high school history teachers and the US survey. And so I I yeah. prepared resourced high school history teachers for the US survey. Um my my as a historian, my specialty is US labor and working class history as well as American religious history. And I'm really interested in the in the stories of working class Christianity. Um, and the relationship between the churches and the labor movement in the 19th and 20th centuries.
1: So that's an interesting combo. I don't know um, how familiar listeners are with the different breakdowns in the way people study uh, the past, but um, combining labor and religious history is an interesting one. Um, I assume you did that on purpose, but what made you uh, want to do that to, to combine labor and religious history?
0: You know... I'm interested in the story of working-class Christians, of ordinary Christians, the sorts of people who who were in the pews, and, uh, as opposed to necessarily the people who were running the denomination. And I, I found in, in grad school, as I was studying labor history, that those people were not well represented in the story of American labor working-class history. Um, we knew about the leaders of churches, and we knew about leaders of union movements, and we knew that there were Christians who were participating in union movements and the Socialist Party and all sorts of elements of the labor movement, especially the Knights of Labor, but we didn't really know a lot about the the role of working class Christianity in its larger political um ramification. And and I, I learned sort of early on that, say in the Socialist Party of the of America, um, it had lots of different names, but the, the Debsian Party, the Socialist Party, which saw it which was ultimately a social democratic party, there were a lot of of Christians, of people who who not only went to church on a regular basis and professed the the faith um in Jesus, but but who actually sort of had a vision of making the United States into a more Christian nation, as they understood it. Um, what they called a cooperative commonwealth. And I I, be, I became really interested in in following these people they, and this vision of a Christian commonwealth, a cooperative commonwealth that was an expression of, of the, the true tenets of, of Christ's teachings, um, and what happened to them in the story of the 20th century, what happened to them, say, by World War One, and what happened to them in, in a larger sense as they, what happened to these ideas about the visions of, of a Christian nation, their visions of.
1: Right. All right, we'll get into the the meat of the story, uh the history in, in just a second. I did have one more question around um working class Christianity. You said it's been underrepresented in by historians that this isn't this usually isn't the the group of people or even the framing of religion. It's usually not. I mean, there's a lot of people that do class and religion, but it's still not the the predominant way. Do you have thoughts on just why that is? What what is it that makes Working class Christianity uh, less prominent in the histories we write about this period and about religion in general.
0: I think it's it's really complicated, and that's why it's really intriguing to me because it's not necessarily the case that we have working class denominations and wealthy denominations. Although to some extent we we see that you no know, in the night in the past and in the present, um, and it, it class is not the always the operative category. Of, of people's identity when they're at church, and so it's it's sort of a funny question to ask because not everyone who is participating in this movement that we as historians call working class Christianity are, are using those terms. But I found that that the study of social class is a really intriguing one, and this and the study of, of working class people is is really important. And so I became interested in in telling the story of these ordinary people.
1: Right, and we'll get we'll get into it a bit. Um but it it also seems to me that when we think of you know a term like the social gospel which we'll get to but a, a pretty strong term particularly here at a place in like UW Madison which um had its own connections to the social gospel um the social gospel is in in many ways you know um an an intellectual movement it's more than that but it's it's largely when we when we think of the social gospel we think of certain books or certain institutes or organizations or these sort of elite church gatherings or or leaders and i i don't in one really basic way they leave a lot more in the historical record that is easy for most of us to access than do working class people who probably aren't writing down their every thoughts or their you know systematic theology on on this or that so it seems to me that there's just a basic source difference as well and a lot of us uh who study this stuff gravitate toward people who write a lot and people who um were were more prominent and then they sort of stand in for Christianity at that era or or sort of that denomination or that uh, that set of ideas. Do you think that's true as well?
0: Definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um so we're getting into the the meat of the book here. So the the book's title again, The Gospel of Church How Mainline Protestants Vilified Christian Socialism and Fractured the Labor Movement. So very strong verbs there, vilified and fractured. We'll we'll get to We'll get to those verbs. Um, but maybe we could start with the title, The Gospel of Church. What is that in reference to? And, and why did you want to make that sort of the center of uh, of the book?
0: Thanks for asking. Yeah, titles are always so fraught. Um, so the book is about this rivalry in the late 19th and early 20th century between a competing um, or among competing visions of how to build a more Christian nation. And on one hand, I argue, as you know, on the first few chapters, there's this grassroots movement of of Christians, many of whom are participating in the Socialist Party because Eugene Debs sort of brings together this movement under his umbrella of of the Social Democracy, of the social uh, of the Socialist Party. And in this vision, the 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 way to make a more Christian nation is to build more to build more cooperative enterprise. So more cooperative uh, uh, farming, cooperative uh, municipalities of all sorts. So we're a um, uh, uh, transportation systems that are collectively owned, and water systems, and electric systems. And this this vision of cooperation and sharing the profits and and the benefits of of any sort of uh, enterprise that is making profit was the vision of how to actually put into practice. The, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of, of love and care for one's neighbor. And, and this vision of, of the Socialist Party was actually quite popular within many, many churches that working class people attended. And so I've, I've found that there are lots of churches called people's churches, labor temples, um, and within these churches, people are practicing these ideals, these ideals of, of sharing the, the profits of capital among a whole community and not just those people who own the factors of production. And I argue that this movement is growing with momentum in the late 19th and early 20th century, and it is actually growing so quickly that it's that it's scaring a lot of the leaders of mainline denominations at the time. So then the book sort of shifts over to the story of these mainline Protestant ministers and how they uh, respond to this growing social democratic will. Um, And the book, I know I'm answering this question, What is the Gospel of Church? The book is about this vision of the mainline Protestants to sort of capture the energy of that social democratic movement and to get these working class people going to mainline Protestant churches. And I'm using the term mainline anachronistically here. That term is not yet used. But the the goal of the Federal Council of Churches in 1908 as they form and try to define the parameters of American Protestantism the goal of that movement i argue is to um to build up a strong sense of church participation in the united states and i argue that this but the better accounts of church's mission is the gospel of church their mission is to get people to go to church and to to live under the authority the moral and spiritual authority of white protestant denominational leaders as opposed to under the authority the, of the socialist party
1: so if 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 you're a listener and you're familiar with the way this story is often told it, you might be a, in a little sense of vertigo or something because usually when we think about mainline Protestant leaders um and here we'll, we'll introduce the term social gospel I'm going to ask you next sort of just define that because I as I understand it that is the dominant framework for these church leaders' they they're they're the social gospel those are, those tend to be framed in an American religious history context as the most progressive side of of the Uh, of the spectrum, right? They're on the left side, they're on the progressive side, they're advocating for the rights of labor and and other things in relation to more conservative factions. But one of the interesting things of your book is you put them actually in the more conservative uh, perspective, you could say, and that they're actually looking with great concern on these labor temples and the labor movement more broadly, Eugene Debs being this major political figure in that world, who's who's preaching a much more radical, uh, collectivist, uh, cooperative gospel, uh, you could say. So it's an interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, switch, switching of the roles, I guess. So that where social gospels are actually the, the conservative ones. One, the, the, I just want to confirm that that's uh, an accurate representation of what you're doing. Yeah. And two, okay. And two, um, could you could you then help us understand what is the social gospels you understand it um, in this in this context? And and maybe one just one reason I mentioned this just a minute ago. Um, one of the legacies from the University of Wisconsin Madison, which is where we're at here in Madison is that it became very well known as a a sort of think tank for the social gospel. There were people like Richard Ely, uh, John Commons, who were very active, producing tons of of sociological economic research used by social gospelers and other progressive reformers to advocate for state-level reforms. But also someone like Richard Ely, and you write about him a few times in your book, was very involved in church politics and, and church reform movements and stuff like that. Um, and so there's there's sort of a, a legacy. there's a there's a strong progressive legacy at uW. Madison. And part of it is tied to this understanding that back when the social gospel was around that that uW professors, at least at least a few of them, were really involved in this as well. So as I'm thinking about your reframing of the social gospel, I'm also thinking about, oh, how would that reframe how we talk about uW's uh, own history. But,, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about the social gospel and how that plays into your story.
0: keep this question. And yes, that's a that's a really great point that. The social gospel is a movement that's bigger than just, as you're pointing out, it's bigger than just the Federal Council of Churches, which is the focus of my book. It's it's a larger, um, progressive coalition of of Christians who are trying to use the the doctrines of Christianity to reform the United States in in ways that that will create more equity and more justice for for working people. Um, and so I, I I agree that that those books sit in Madison are part of this larger network that we call the social gospel um, as well as I'm also saying that we I, I am encouraging us to think about that a little bit differently So my argument here is that the social gospel movement of the early 20th century is very conservative as compared to the movement the grassroots movement of working people within many many communities and many labor many you know labor unions as well as the socialist party. It is moderate. In the United States, in a broader sense, because it's true that this social gospel is, or this, this progressive movement, more broadly, is is sort of trying to find a middle ground between the labor movement and the 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 conservative business owners who really believe in you know what you know what William Sumner and others are are talking about what what rich people owe the poor is nothing according to many of the tycoons of the early twentieth century um, and. Social gospelers are are finding a middle ground. They're trying to say, actually, we do owe our neighbors something. And they're trying to define what that is. But my argument is that if they did not sort of, if the social gospel movement, the federal council of churches had not sort of intervened in the way they did and sort of defined a new Christian orthodoxy the way that they did, they might've actually been able, the the labor movement might've actually had a, a bigger voice. And, and more parameter to define their vision of a Christian nation, which was actually far, far to the left of that of the social. And so the story that I tell in, say, chapters four, five, and six and seven, sort of in the middle of the book, is about the, the relationship building between the labor movement and the federal council of churches. As the labor, labor leaders are literally sitting down with or standing at a podium with many of these. Leaders of major religious denominations, Protestants—I mean Presbyterians and Methodists especially—and they're they're sort of trying to to convince one another to see the world from their perspective, and so it's it's this. I can't say that these ministers are all hostile toward the labor movement because they're not. They're they building relationships, and 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 um, trying to to see, trying to 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 get along, trying to build coalition for both of their sakes. But in many ways, I'm arguing that. What these white Protestant ministers wanted out of this relationship was for these working class people to respect them, to revere them, and to trust their social and moral authority in public space. They want they want these ministers they want these working people to go to church, and they want to be able to represent those poor people in public. They want to to negotiate. Do they want to be the mediators when when workers go on strike? They want to play the role of mediator and establish sort of the terms of the contract afterwards and take credit for, for creating those good terms. And they ultimately want to be able to define what, to the extent to which Christianity is compatible with with capitalism. And, and over overwhelmingly the social gospel movement, or, or I, I should say the federal council of churches define Christianity such that capitalism is not um, a problem. <laughs> they, they don't think that the, the the, private ownership of the means of production is a problem within the faith, And they see that over and over again, even as socialists are, are arguing otherwise. So I'm arguing that the, that the white Protestant ministers really try to steal the thunder away from these uh, working class Christians as they're trying to define a different sort of theology of, of economics and as, as socialists are trying to define a new ecclesiology of the role of the church in the world
1: um that, that makes a lot of sense and it it makes me think that as much maybe something i've overlooked as i've thought about the social gospel uh is um i know one one way it's easily defined is sort of applying christian ethics to society or something like that where this is the move that a lot of social gospels are doing i think what your book has has pointed out to me is that a, a key part of what the social gospel was for these leaders of it were was that the that, that they were at the center of the story that, that that was a key part of it and by them more broadly that church structure would be at the center of any type of reform of society and that that's as much part of what the social gospel was about as was any particular view on labor or foreign policy or um, or poverty or something like that it was this idea that in society needed to go through the church or at least the church needed to be involved and that's an that's an interesting addition i guess for at least for my own understanding of what the social gospel was all about it was an attempt to keep the church at the center of these social conversations, that um, I guess, uh, and we'll get to that now. The, the labor movement, in particular, thought there were other ways, perhaps, or or, or entirely other structures, where um, some of these deep social issues could be mediated and and solved. Um, and th- that brings us to to the labor movement. So so if we know who the social gospelers generally are, they are leaders of main Protestant denominations. There's this Federal Council of Churches, which is this overarching institution. That's bringing together all these denominations. It's now called National Council of Churches, still around, still very active. Um, and that, that's on one side. Then on the other side, we have the labor movement, and you you talk about radical labor and socialists and social democrats and all these types. What's the what's the sort of elevator pitch or the or the description for who is in the labor movement and who actually represents them and and is most important to follow in the story?
0: That's a hard question. So to, I use the term labor movement to act, and historians more not just me. The, the historians of the labor movement tell, use the term labor movement to represent sort of any efforts of working people to build coalition in for the goal of, of building more equity for the sake of workers. And so the labor movement, the, the dominant unions of the late 19th, early 20th century are affiliated with the American Federation of Labor, which is a large federation of, of trade unions, many of whom are actually dominated by skilled workers until World War One when that begins to change. Um, there's also a, a whole, rad- what was called at the time, the radical labor movement, which was largely occupied by workers who are so-called proletarianized who are, or who, who, skills, who are de-skilled, they're working in de-skilled labor, not necessarily people with poor skills, but they, their work is not highly skilled and therefore it's not highly paid. And the American Federation of Labor is a trade union representing skills, and so they're not well represented until World War I mm-hmm. in the American Federation of Labor. Now, all this sort of is just a, many elements of the labor movement of the late 19th the 20th century. The, one of the reasons it's, it's important probably for this conversation is that the American Federation of Labor is a, is a very conservative organization by the terms of labor in the, in the world in the late 19th and early 20th century. It's conservative in that it it doesn't technically. Sam Gombers is the president. He doesn't technically take a stand on capitalism on the question of capitalism. He, they're not officially socialist. In fact, they're sort of anti-socialist. They're not really interested in engaging in that question. A lot of people who are members of the American Federation of Labor are socialists and are always trying to what they call bore from within, which is sort of take over from the bottom up. But but especially the American Federation of Labor. Is, is not has no opinion on capitalism. They just want what they call a bigger piece of the pie. And, and what that means is that as the American Federation of Labor is trying to build membership, which is you know the goal of any trade union organization, they are often partnering with um, religious leaders, including the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches. And when, when the Federal Council of Churches forms together, they're able to more more productively cooperate or partner with, the, the Federal Council of Churches, which is all the the, the white Protestant um, denominations and actually some black denominations as well. And when they do this, there's something in it for, for all sides. Of course the American Federation of Labor wants to build members and information about all of those members, you know, the cards with addresses the so they can continue to 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 get their support. But the churches also have something in it for them. And what historians have have already recognize that in these partnerships one thing that's in it for the church leaders is to to get um support for their churches and sort of get a better name better branding for their churches within the, within the country i'm also arguing that one of the goals in these partnerships is to to sort of change the the relationship between the churches and labor such that that church leaders get um respected by by working people that that Uh, The the church leaders also have the names and addresses of all those working people in their community so they can invite them to
1: church. And that's one thing that I found really helpful early on in your book is you gave a lot of um, sociological and even sort of statistical information about where who went to church in, say, 1890 and what different parts of the country were more religious than others. And particularly, I guess, around class, the idea that... Many, and, and a growing number over the period you study, uh, working class people weren't going to church, that this was actually not part of, or going to, uh, I should say, Protestant uh, mainline churches, at least, um, that, that that was actually um, not the case, and that this was one of the prompts for why church leaders were, became much more interested in the labor question. So unpack for us, what, um, why weren't labor uh, labor working class people going to church in 1890?
0: Yes. Thank you for asking. I, you know, I, I wrote this dissertation a long time ago. I took many more years to do this statistical analysis of church participation. Um, and, and I don't even know if it was worth it, but, but I learned a lot. And one thing I learned is that, so so I guess I'll tell you why, why I I took all these extra years to study, you know, church statistics, church participation statistics. So the argument of of my book overall is that, or one of the arguments here is that the social gospel movement actually helped save white Protestantism in the United States. That, you know, in the United States, just like in Europe in the late 19th century, churches were receding from power in society. You know, in Germany and England and France, in many countries that that were industrialized in late 19th century, many countries that had large socialist movements, just like the United States in the late 19th century, churches were receding from power because working people were no longer actually invited or welcome within these uh, churches. Churches were really bastions of the middle classes and the aspirate middle class. Middle classes were people who were largely professional or aspirant professional. They were clerks, they were foremen, they had so-called white-collar jobs. And working people in, in a world where there was pew rent, where one had to rent a pew either to be part of a church, in a world where in order to be, become a member of a church, one had to profess their faith with sort of the sponsors of other, you know, respectable people. Working people were not really invited into most denominational churches. They they couldn't afford to be there, and they were they were not sort of expected to be there in, in any really significant social way. Um, there were lots of revivals that took place. There were many ways that working people were participating in a larger conversation about Christianity and, and reading, and participating in print culture um, in many, many different ways. But the brick-and-mortar churches of the late 19th century did not really represent working people. And and again, of course, this is partly because of this sprawl to, to the West. This is partly because of the the enormous social dislocations of the late 19th century um, and the lack of money to build churches in many places that were already sort of homesteading communities um, and and railroad communities, transit communities of miners and factories out West. So. The, the, I begin there, and I did all this sort of extra research on, on church participation to, to help sort of substantiate this argument that that the Federal Council of Churches is forming. Now, the social gospel movement is forming in order to build up the place of, of Protestant churches in the United States, in order to secure a place for white Protestantism in the United States, while Americans recognized that in European countries, church leaders were actually losing and losing and losing their place in, in, in secular society.
1: It's fascinating. One of the stats you had um, on one of the sheets was that in, in the 1890s, only about 30% of people went to church on a given weekend, uh, I guess. And and it, it's not much different now. I, I was actually looking at something recently. It's like 32% after COVID and and everything. So see, it's almost interesting. It also goes against this idea that there's some linear decline or or sort of story to um, American Christianity. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think that that dispels that, uh, if nothing else. Um, I think it's just notable. Um, uh, it, it's not. It's more than notable because you you highlighted a lot in the book that. Um, that the, uh, the leaders of the social gospel movement were almost entirely white and, and male, and that a lot of, even some of their fears around the shifting trends in the country, the sociology of the country, were rooted in this sense of 19th century understandings of race and immigration and, and what a Christian identity would be, uh, for the ideal Christian identity would be for them. So yeah, if you could talk a bit more just about how, how that dynamic played into your broader history.
0: The Federal Council of Churches is forming in the early twentieth century. I think in response to a, a number of fears, and then as it as it continues to grow, new fears sort of uh, attach to those. Okay. So one, and I think that the, the first that is is um, situating the the rise in 1908 as the Federal Council of Churches is just forming is the fear of Roman Catholicism. So at the time, it, in the 1890 census census uh, of religious bodies. It's it's very clear that there are more Roman Catholics, or at least nominal Roman Catholics, than any other Protestant denomination of any type, and even all of them put together. And that particular fear, which we can call racial, I think that that would be the right term at the time, um, but of course is more complicated than that. It's this fear of of immigrants and of of Roman Romans, uh, you know, the the Roman Catholic Church. Is, is actually really fundamental in the in the in the understandings of the people who are forming that in 1908. Mm-hmm. Of course, also in after the turn of the century, there's there's a massive migration of African Americans out of uh, the Jim Crow South into northern industry, um, and into industry in places like St. Louis and Chicago and 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 in Ohio. And so as the 20th century goes on, there are more and more black neighborhoods in the north. There are more uh, people of color who are working in heavy industry in the West, and unions are organizing, especially radical unions are organizing in many of these different places, especially the IWW. So as, as the 20th century goes on, the labor movement begins, and, and not as well as they could, but begins to take on the the what was called the race question, begins to build interracial solidarities. And at that point, the Federal Council of Churches um, is responding to something that that is that it appears from the perspective of many of these white Protestants in the North to be to becoming increasingly radical. I, I think, you know, if you ask labor leaders is, if it's becoming increasingly radical, there are many different answers to that question. But because there, because there is significant change, there are more and more non-white Protestants participating in public life. A lot of white Protestants are afraid of what the future of the country is going to foretell. And they're especially f- afraid of the losing sort of market share of white Protestants in the United States. White Protestants are becoming, you know, proportionately less, you know, they're taking up a smaller fraction of 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 the United States in terms of the, the census and I argue that the social gospel movement is an effort to, to uh, make louder the the presence and, and intellectual importance of white Protestants in the United States. So that's why they, they're soon building relationships with Woodrow Wilson and the Democratic Party to sort of boost their their brand and their voice and the sound of their voice in a world where, that is becoming more diverse.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting just to see how those particular fears of a certain era that, uh, frankly, are shared still by some today, but but certainly are, are differently formulated than they were 100 years ago, really do go into some of the base um, motivations for what people were doing um, back then. I think uh, one of the other really interesting parts that that you track is um, this question of ecclesiology. So for those uninitiated, this is just sort of the the doctrine of the church. who's in the church? What is the structure of the church? Where does the church come from? How does it relate to God? All those types of questions uh, we we sort of put under ecclesiology. And I thought it was really interesting. You pointed out that one of um, one of the trends in this period is the growth of of independent churches, of churches that are far less connected to, um, a hierarchy. Um, and, and my, my gathering, a lot of them are, you know, sort of Baptistic type churches. And, and those would also have a much lower sense of, um, by low and high, I mean, sort of low and high church liturgies. And these tend to be more on the low side and, maybe tied up with um, uh, uh, revivalism uh, and other things. though so a revivalism that may be inflected with with, um, with labor politics and, and other things in as well. But talk a bit about, I thought that was just a really interesting point that some of the, the trends in what types of churches are growing, and then of course what the implications are between those churches and labor and, the, and broader society, those are changing a lot at this time as well.
0: The, the federal of churches I keep talking about because they're a big fraction of my book. They are... They're not uniformly high church folks, but they're dominated by liturgical um, Protestants who are just coming out of the 19th century. There's, they're dominated by, by Methodists and Presbyterians. And there are Baptists who are also a, a significant part of that organization because, the, yes, as you say, a growing fraction of the United States are people who are in low church denominations. It's true that, as you're pointing out, the the social gospel movement is... A, is a coalition of white Protestants who are coming together in some ways to preserve the older denominations and their influence, as, as these other denominations, like the Baptists, or, or you know, arguably a denomination, actually extremely decentralized, are taking over at the local level in much of the United States, outside of, say, the Northeast. Uh, they're really taking over at the local level, and the Federal Council of Churches is Trying to sort of defend a unified voice of American Protestantism to give a lot of those well-trained pastors in the Northeast a sense of authority over it to speak for the nation, when in fact they they're not uh, dominating, at least not numerically, most of the country.
1: Do you think? Um, by the way, I come out of a, a free church tradition, so I, I identify a bit with with the, the, the lower churches uh, myself, but. Do you think there was any um do you think there's any sense that lower church uh, let's just take the baptist for example that if you're in a baptist setting if you're in a baptist congregation are you more likely to see labor organizing and this uh, this this more communitarian cooperative collectivist um way of thinking about church about what what even the church is called to do is there a compatibility there or is that or did you see any of that um, or was it sort of not related to the type of church you were a part of?
0: That's a really good question. I think so from what I know, the it really depends on what part of the country. So in okay. in the rural spaces and in the south and in the west, it's true the lower the low church traditions are are much more likely to be those that really represent working people, and that is this type of working class Christianity that predominates. So that's, that's a really good point. Um, in, in major urban centers, my understanding is that, and this isn't really something I get to very much in my book, but my understanding is that the Northern urban centers, that actually the, the, that's not the type of working class Christianity that is predominating, at least not in the early 20th century. Um, and so, for example, I have this whole chapter on a working class church where I, yeah, basically a Presbyterian mission in New York City, which is reaching out largely to Italians and Jews who are in their neighborhood. And this particular experience of working class Christianity, of of this interaction between these Presbyterian radicals <laughs> in some ways, mm-hmm. radicals, social settlement workers, and and working class immigrants in the north is is actually sort of outside of that that other tradition that's taking place at the same time of low church working class Christianities in rural space.
1: That's really interesting. Um, I do want to get to that example of the, I believe it's the labor temple, uh, the Presbyterian labor temple, right right next to the actual you know, more, more labor union labor temple. Um, we'll get to that. Um, one other question, though, just ch- trying to set up, you've you mentioned the Federal Council of Churches a number of times. That's this big organization that is the umbrella organization for all these denominations. Um, you mentioned in the book that 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 was founded for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was because the Protestants were trying to create some type of structure or hierarchy to basically rival the the uh, Catholic Church's hierarchy. They and we mentioned the anti-Catholicism that was at the heart of this. You know, one of the one of the key documents from this period for Catholics is is Rerum Novarum from the from 1891, which is this classic Catholic social teaching uh, sort of statement on the relationship between capital and labor. I wonder if you could just talk about um, how do Catholics land on this debate between social gospel and and labor and um, and and sh- and how are they sort of how are they different and how are they the same uh, as as the main people you're tracking?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. So what I found, and this was a hard question to track because. I expected that if the Protestants and the Catholics agreed on something, they would say that out loud. (laughs) Mm. What I found is that in many, many cases in the early 20th century, Roman Catholics and social gospel Protestants actually have a lot in common in terms of how they understand Christianity to interface capitalism. They, they, They think that trade unions are legitimate and and in many ways, the, the Federal Council of Churches endorses all of the tenets of River Barm, but they never say that. Um, they they endorse the, the same ideals, which are that trade are legitimate um, entities for working people to secure uh, the, the rights of a living wage. They defend I mean, Catholics are are more defensive of the concept of a living wage than Protestants. But ultimately, you might say that the Federal Council of Churches' social creed is is. Is defending the concept of a living wage. They say the, they don't use that term, but they they are actually in support of that ideal. Um they're they're all in favor of curbing child labor. They're all in favor of giving people's opportunities to have a day off every week, like some sort of Sabbath. Um so in many ways, what and the Catholics also won't say out loud that they, they agree with the Protestants. Um, but if you actually look at what they all believe, they actually have a lot in common. And we know we know because those of us who've been to all their archives know that they are writing letters to one another, um, and yeah. so there are actual relationships that are formed. But these are not sort of. There's no official statement of agreement because that would be ecumenicism, and that would be um, abhorrent, actually, on both ends. So, so it's interesting how. That's why the term "social gospel" I think is useful because it's not just a Protestant movement; it's actually even a Jewish movement as well. Rabbi Stephen Wise also agrees with. With all these Catholics and Protestants in these ideals. Um, and so then what we recognize is that the Federal Council of Churches is not really just about um defending a different Christian um theology. It's actually it's a it's a support of the of the Catholic theology toward labor at the same time. And they're they're working together with the American Federation of Labor. Um in fact, I, I that's why as I try to dig as I tried to dig into what is the social gospel and what's the point of, of building the social gospel movement, I recognize that it's not to sort of define something that's distinctive about Protestant theology. It's it's perhaps something more about what's distinctive about Protestant churches.
1: That's interesting. Um, well, there's a ton of different you could say sites of contestation that you go through the, over this period from you know the 1890s to up to World War One in the 19 teens. Um, I thought just as just to hit on one briefly, you mentioned it. There was a um I'm gonna forget the the, the pastor's name, but there was a Presbyterian pastor who founded something called the Labor Temple in New York City. Yes.
0: Charles Stelsel.
1: Charles Stelsel. And and this was almost a, like a direct competitor to a a labor temple that was used by labor unions for uh, labor union activity. Give us a sense of why did he Find, found a labor temple. I mean, there, there's obviously an intentionality there. And what was what was he hoping to do as a representative of the social gospel perspective? What was he hoping to do with rank and file workers in New York City?
0: Great question. So Charles Stelsel uh, very quickly, was a German-born um, immigrant to the United States. He w- he lived in in New York City. He actually was a machinist and and very proudly got a union card until he decided to go back to school and become a Presbyterian pastor. Um, so he he becomes a pastor at a young age while he's also identifying, or at least trying to identify, as a working person. And he shows people his union card all the time. And he gets involved at the very high levels of the American Federation of, of, of Labor as a what he calls himself a ministerial delegate. He tries to represent ministers in New York City and then eventually the whole whole United States. What is he doing? I, I became really interested in the question of what is he doing at the local level? What is his vision of ministry in New York City, for example? And and he, he comes to New York City after actually working in other cities. And so his labor temple, he calls it he he calls this Presbyterian mission um, the labor temple. It's actually sort of owned by the Presbytery of New York as a as a missionary as a missionary entity. So it, it's not a, a an official church of the of the denomination that becomes important only during the Red Scare of World War One. Um, and within this within this mission, he opens lots of rooms during the week to union members to have union meetings, and they're free. And he also hires a a teacher from Columbia, um, William Durand, to to give lectures on literature and history and philosophy. Um, and and these are very inexpensive lectures. And and it's sort of and he he's trying to make this church, this ministry space, into a community gathering space of all types. And he's very successful in that. Um, He also has regular lectures where he brings in sort of radical, interesting people from the community, including Margaret Sanger and Booker to Washington who come in and just give, give talks on a regular basis to the community. And and he's very successful in building this, this church as a, as a community center, as a center of interesting political and social debate as, as a space for people coming of age, as a space to hang out. He has Sunday night church, which we think of that as a very recent thing, but he has this whole vision of working people going to church at Sunday night at like 8 to 10 p.m. Um, and he's there for that. And then after church, he has movies, which we also think is a modern thing. But he, he's very interested in connecting with, with the local people. Um, and so I argue that this is a great example of the social gospel in action. It's it's an effort to sort of invite working people into a a space that's actually owned and governed by a white Protestant denomination, and to shape that those conversations that take place within that space. So, for example, at the Sunday night, evening, Sunday night lecture series, Stelsel himself gives himself the right after the talk to interpret whatever the other person said and sort of give a Christian perspective in response. Um, and then he also has a regular bulletin that he publishes, and within this bulletin he editorializes on everything that took place and offers the Christian response. And so he's, so again, I see this as, this is the social gospel in action. It's an effort to invite working people into a certain kind of partnership with, with white Protestant leaders, while also sort of defining, using this, this interaction as an opportunity to define what is Christianity and what is the boundary between Christianity and socialism or radicalism or other sort of bad ideas that he sort of identifies as, um, Heretical. and and he does this over and over again, and he he trains a lot of others to follow in his footsteps to do the same. So he he actually is working with a lot of of eth- what he would call ethnic ministers, ministers coming out of many different immigrant traditions, to to work with him in in the effort of defining what is Christianity as it de- as it compares to other um, so called radical European ideas.
1: It's so interesting how. Um something as seemingly banal or or, or just innocent uh not, not to make this uh totally agenda but innocent as becoming the community center um has this agenda behind it or, or at least for some people did that that whatever was going to happen in the community well it, it should happen under our roof and that that was a, a way of of trying to control change and control the conversation in a community um and in a place like new york city which obviously had had a lot of uh thick uh so, civic life and and places to go, um, uh, very interesting. And and I think w- what that helped me do as well is just to go back to my maybe very thin understanding of social gospel was a very top down approach. I know others have written. Uh, the historian Heath Carter has written about how unions were really important to the to the social gospel as well. But the the sort of standard image is of a theologian like uh, Washington Gladden or Walter Rauschenbusch and and sort of trickle down these ideas about the kingdom of God and justice and and it was just interesting. You, you do this a number of points in the book, just to seeing on the ground how does this actually affect people's lives? How do they experience these these in many ways very abstract, conceptual, theological concepts um, in practice? And and also putting them in tension then with these other visions of of justice and of um, equality that are um, in many ways to the left of, of these of these types of people. It's very interesting. Um, Okay, I want to I want to uh, wrap up uh, our discussion by getting to where you end the book, which is World War One and its aftermath. So I'll let you take this however you want. But why do you end in World War One? What's the what's the what's the most important um, change that happens or storyline that ends uh, in World War One and its aftermath?
0: Good question. Thank you. So I argue that until World War One, say between 1908 and 1917 or so. The labor movement and the churches are in the process of building relationships, and it's not really—it's it, it, not really predictable which one is leading and which one is following, and, and that's because the labor movement is growing in numbers and in public respect. Um, and more and more every year it, it appears labor leaders are are more respected. Their their ideas are being published in the newspapers with, with some element of respect. And and that is partly because of the growing progressive movement that we mentioned before of of middle class people sort of giving their respect to the labor leaders to, to hear what they have to say and, and legitimize those ideas. And so I argue between nineteen oh eight and nineteen seventeen, it, it it seems like these two these 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 two players, if you, if you want to see it as the church leaders and, and labor leaders are, are both sort of working hand in hand. It's not sure, we're not sure who is going to sort of lead the future of the nation. And then I, I argue that World War I changes the dynamics of that relationship and it really elevates the authority of Protestant ministers. And that is because of a lot of things. And it has a lot to do with because of the Red Scare um, and it, because of Woodrow Wilson, and his relationship with the Federal Council of Churches. So very quickly, the, the Woodrow Wilson builds a relationship with the Federal Council of Churches from from the time he's running for president, and especially within his second his his election for his second term. The Federal Council of Churches has this vision of of Christian justice, which Wilson just endorses whole hog and says that that's what he believes in. And so right. he he relies upon the Federal Council of Churches at their massive database of, of church leaders um, to to get himself re-elected. And then once he enters World War I, which as we know is actually sort of a controversial move, he, you, he relies upon the database that the Federal Council of Churches collected to send out massive mailings to every minister in the United States that the Federal Council of Churches now has all their addresses to ask all of these ministers to support the work. And because Wilson is so reliant on the Federal Council to get out his message of this being a good war, to support a good war to, uh, for self-determination and democracy, um, he is also sort of giving over to the Federal Council of Churches what they want. And what they want is um, his respect and approval of their place as leaders of Christian America. So I argue that during the course of World War One, the Federal Council of Churches comes into tremendous power even greater power than Steam Gawkers, who is the president of the American Federation of Labor. And they built and this relationship between Wilson and the Federal Council breeds a lot of respect of ministers as the arbitrators for labor, um, and as as the people who can sort of set the terms of what is Christianity. And that's at a moment when actually the labor movement wanted to play that role. They wanted to set the terms of what is Christianity, not necessarily Sam Gombers himself, but but Christians with the labor movement wanted to the opportunity to set the terms to define what is Christianity. And those terms are often terms of, co- of collective ownership and management utilities. Um, they wanted to set the terms of of defining there's those contracts when they went on strike. And instead, Wilson and his larger administration are continuing to rely on these mediators, these white Protestant mediators, which are often sort of um Taking on the role of moral and spiritual leaders in the United States when the labor movement wanted to play that,
1: and okay, so the, so during the war, the um, the Federal Council of Churches and its perspective is privileged by the by the U.S. government and particularly Woodrow Wilson. And then uh, you talk about 1919, 1920 is sort of a major period of labor strikes in the U.S. And this often, uh, if you study it, it, often wars actually are, are times of great uh, labor unrest and particularly right after uh, wars, I, I, the the late 1940s, 1950s was another period like that after World War II. But um, yeah, give us a sense of what what was. Um, I, I guess I guess the the takeaway is that those labor strikes largely failed, or they they largely failed to capture the imagination of um, of the rest of the country. How would you describe the the sort of aftermath of the war?
0: Oh, that's thank you for asking that. So this is the last chapter, Chapter Eight, which is or maybe it's mine. The very last chapter of the book is about the great steel strike of 1919. And this is right after the war when uh, the prices of everything is going up. And so there's this there's this real fear of of labor losing because during the course of the war, the labor movement grew. The numbers of, of people who were organized grew more and more. There were more strikes every year. And in the year 1919, because Woodrow Wilson had the war industries worked, because he had a whole... Uh, infrastructure, for addressing strikes, many, many workers were going on strike and winning because there was a there was a whole uh, protocol for what to do when workers went on strike, and they kept winning some elements of what they were going on strike for. So as soon as the war was over, there was a big question about what was going to happen next. Would labor continue to have the power and respect they had in, in the country during the war, or would that all go away as we, quote unquote, returned to normalcy? And so I tell the story uh, of this this massive sort of question through the, what happened in the Great Steel Strike, which was in this winter of um, 20 to, to 1921. And as as workers went on strike all across the, the, the country in this massively organized steel strike, um, Wilson, many workers were expecting, it, Sam Gombers, the Federation of Labor, were expecting that Wilson would support labor because Wilson had been supporting labor previously throughout the war. Meanwhile, the heads of industries also expected that Wilson would support them. And that's because he'd been supporting the heads of industries. He had been um keeping them going um throughout the war. And he he was not a, a, you know, radical socialist by any means. And and more and more of the people organizing in the steel strike were actually radicals and and comfortable saying that out loud. And so Wilson, many people are expecting Wilson will be on their side. And which side is Wilson going to support? The steels the steel strikers who stay out on strike and try to sort of win by a war of attrition, or, or the U- U.S. Steel. And in the midst of this stalemate, John Rockefeller donates many millions of dollars. So one is sort of an estimated $25 million of 1919 money, um, donates millions of dollars to the Federal Council of Church's subsidiary, the Interchurch World Movement. And the Interchurch World Movement is this Massive evangelistic campaign that descends on all of the steel towns of the United States with entertainers and hired preachers and hired musicians and hired all sorts of of people who would sort of steal the um, the public attention, the the attention of the news, <laughs> steal all of the attention of the news, the news cycle to be uh, to pay attention instead to all of this sort of pageantry as instead of the steel stripe, and what we thought is that. That is enormously successful, um, yeah. and in that the newspapers do now pay attention to the interchurch world movement and all of the celebrities who are traveling all over Steel Country, and the steel strikers get less and less of the solidarity and support of the working uh, of the middle classes, and eventually they do have to concede and and stop their strike.
1: So this is a major defeat for the labor side. It reminds me, you know, we we just um, if if we if you've been paying attention. Uh, listener, uh, we you know, we've just gone through a very long strike in Hollywood, and this was this was a big uh, around writers and actors uh, trying to get better terms. And this was actually a common conversation during that strike too in 2023, which was you know where's the public attention and how do the different factions of of either labor or or capital how do they get the attention of the broader public? So very interesting uh, that, that that similar dynamics were happening you know a hundred years ago. And had it had these great uh, consequences for the way that the, your story your story ends? Um, I I want to a- ask two more questions. The first is uh, to, to play a little um, you know uh, 20th century historian uh, hat on. Was there what do we make of this division that you really pit as a central to this period from the 1870s to the to 1920 at least? Between the social gospel and labor, do we still see that division today, or, or how would we, or do we see the legacy of it in some particular area? Maybe it's not exactly active. Labor's changed a lot since the 1920s, so has the mainline Protestant denominations. But where do you see the vestiges of this conflict uh, around us today?
0: That's a really good question. I guess I'll have two answers. One is that I. W- I, I still see Christians wanting to build a place for discussions on Christian socialism with and, and, and wanting to use the labor movement as a forum to discuss the many different ways we can apply the teachings of Jesus to the political and economic sphere. And while I, I see that happening, and I'm even part of some of those communities, to be honest, I also see repeated a lot of the same debates and consequences that we, we saw in the early 20th century. So I, I show in the book that say it's chapter four and five, the the socialist party does not want to have any religious stance. They don't want religion to be any element of their party platform, because religion has done so many bad things in the world by, the, by 1919 that it just doesn't seem like there's any reason to support or endorse or or put down any sort of religious sensibility. The Socialist Party comes to believe that they are in favor of the separation of church and state and private conscience. And, no. and as a result, all of these ideas about putting into practice a sort of Christian socialist ethic no longer have a place to rest because they're not really welcome within the labor movement or as, as a sort of significant space within the labor movement because labor wants to to be secular, but no. they're also not really welcome within the churches. Because the churches are sort of defending a, a sense of comfort with the economic status quo.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think we we've seen those debates. Even I'm I'm not as involved as as you are, but seen those debates uh, more broadly um, in just national coverage of of uh, the the always uh, seemingly sense that there's a new Christian left emerging that would be a little more radical and, you know, the way people debate, uh, whether that's actually going to happen or not. Um, uh, very interesting. Okay. I want to end with, uh, uh, just asking a question that's a little more selfish because we're here at, at upper house and we are, uh, doing a, a theme for a lot of our programming this semester on being a good neighbor. And that's drawn largely from the parable of the good Samaritan and thinking about here in Madison, the different divisions across our city and our society and how, Uh, And really just asking the question, how does Jesus's uh, ethic of loving loving your neighbor, as told through the parable of the Good Samaritan, how should that affect us here? And you you don't need to answer uh, that particular version of the question. But I wonder, as a historian of labor, as a historian of religion, um, do you have any insight on this, on on what, um, I, I would even guess if you were to ask a labor leader in 1910 and a um, social gospel theologian in 1910. What is the per, what is the meaning of the Good Samaritan uh, parable? I, I imagine they'd have different, though probably similar, but but maybe significantly different answers um, in, in how that is actually applied in Christian ethical uh, living. But I wonder, from a historian's perspective, who's who studied a lot of class division, a lot of uh, you know people who actually are neighbors but don't like each other. <laughs> I assume in the historical record. Uh, what do you make of the parable of the good Samaritan from the perspective of of labor history?
0: Oh, well, that's such a great question. So maybe I'll take this in a in a slightly personal way. Um, so the book is dedicated to intervarsity Christian fellowship. I was part of IVCF for what fourteen or fifteen years, and I'm still I still see those that community as wonderful and the sort of people who helped me ask these questions, taught me to ask these questions that late nineteenth century and and in, in some ways, my critique of the churches or, or the, yeah, the bright Protestant churches of the early 20th century comes out of some of my experience in ministry for all those years. And what I found is that after a while, we, we, we sometimes went back and forth between inviting people who who didn't know about the teachings of Jesus into a good conversation on the teachings of Jesus and on what what he was asking us to think about and inviting people into an institution so that people could be another member of that institution. And I would say that this this, uh, challenge, this this sort of thing we kept running into in the early 2000s is still a thing. It's also a thing that people ran into in the late 19th century when working class Christians were sitting in a spot in, in American culture where they could easily see, maybe even better than some wealthier people, that when people talked about the, the teachings of Jesus, they weren't necessarily just talking about the teachings of Jesus. They were talking about being part of a particular social club and living in authority under that social club. Um, and I would say that working people of the late 19th century would would point out that sometimes there really is a difference between the, the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, the teachings of seeing others at, and loving others really as you you love yourself or your family, um, that sort of central message of Christianity and the message of being a member of a of a large institution that exerts power in the country, and and I I would say that that is one legacy of these people that I tried to bring to light in this book. Um, that that it's it's important to to not lose track of. Of the, the extent to which the institutional church has its own political goals, once it is a big and powerful institution.
1: Great. Well, thanks for that reflection. Um, if nothing else, it, it maybe just to echo what you just said: the, the teachings of Jesus um, are very radical. <laughs> um, wherever you land, um, uh, you know, politically in the, in the in a particular issue, they are very radical, and they are, they are usually much more radical um, than most of us uh, would like to uh, countenance at, at any given time. So, uh, Janine Giordano-Drake, thank you for joining us here. Thank you for the book. The book is The Gospel of Church, How Mainline Protestants Vilified Christian Socialism and Fractured the Labor Movement. Just came out with Oxford University Press. Janine, thanks for joining us on Upwards.
0: Thank you so much for having me.